illumination flares going off, there was gunfire, there was artillery fire. I knew something was happening. And I heard the, the company, uh, I heard the boots and the gravel crunching and the NCOs going down the line, checking to make sure that nobody's equipment rattled. And uh, so I thought, ah, I gotta go out. So I, I got suited up and I went out um, and uh, lo and behold, I bump into uh, to, uh, Henry Smith, uh, Corporal Smitty, Smitty Smith, we called him Smitty. And, uh, and I said, Smitty, I said, what are you doing here? And he laughed, he said, same thing you're doing, sir. Get ready for the uncloseted conservative hour you've been waiting for. No censors, no fake news, just facts and the freedom to speak them. Friends, if you are still in the conservative closet, I've got one question for you. Why? We've sat in silence. We've been on the sidelines for years. How has it been working out? That's why it's an uncloseted conservative revolution right here, right now. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Joe Mobley Show. I am Joe Mobley, your host and the original Uncloseted Conservative. Guys, thanks so much for joining us on today's very special episode. A salute to our veterans on this Veterans Day. Uh, that was, I'm seeing the reflection here. That was a right, a correct right-handed salute. If it looks like it's the left, see, this is my left hand wedding ring. Yeah, because I can see, I can see you guys like this guy's not a real vet. He's saluted with his left hand. Guys, today's episode is brought to you by MyPillow, MyPillow.com. Support patriot companies, American companies that give jobs to American patriots just like yourself to put food on your table and money in your bank accounts, even though my money is in the mattress these days for uh, reasons that we don't need to get into. Guys, the promo code is Mobley. Mobley is spelled M-O-B-L-E-Y. Use promo code Mobley for up to 66% savings all over the websites. Look, it's not just pillows. Look, look, like mattress covers. Yeah, God. I can't say enough things about the slippers and the robes. Like, good night. Uh, the slippers and the robes. Guys, We've got some awesome patriots on today's episode, and we're going to get into it right now. I lied. We're not going to get into it right now. I did want to explain the uh, the uh, Arabic on the shirt here. Um, so I did a comedy show. Uh, I did my first time doing stand-up. Some of you went. Thanks so much for supporting that. It was an awesome time. Uh, but in Bethesda, Maryland, and, and Maryland is a rough place for outspoken conservatives like myself. Uh, but the the headliner was uh, this guy, Ramin. Uh, and I just I want to put his socials up here so you guys can go and join his communities. I'm not even going to try and say his last name. No, I'll try it. It looks like Ramin Mustafavi. Mustafavi. Um, but definitely check him out on the internet. And at the close of the show, uh, being a uh, an Arabic American uh, citizen, um, born over there, immigrated here, just like uh, you know, uh, Demis uh, co-hosted the show for a time, Iranian immigrant. And when you, if you don't hang out with a lot of Middle Easterners, then you don't know how like down the earth they are. 
and how different their culture is. Um, so my generation, uh, you know, OEF type vets, post 9-11 uh, type vets, he, he makes the shirt because he says, the only time that we see these letters, like writing that looks like this is on like some kind of terror symbol or like, you know, like a, a pirate flag or something. Uh, so as a comedian, he makes the shirt and it says laughter on it. And I'm not going to try to say this in Arabic because that would be a, a disaster. Uh, but anyway, I bought the shirt. I thought it was a good cause, a good idea. Um, he is funny as crud. So follow him on socials. And now we're getting into it. We got Casey Gates, never hates, always loves and appreciates. Follow his locals. It's right there, clubcaseygates.locals.com. And the one and only fan favorite, United States Marine, like you've never seen, Senator Dick Black of Virginia. Senator Black, how are you, sir? Good to be here with you. I'm doing fine. Awesome. Yeah, Casey, what great. about you? Oh, not bad, not bad. Just uh, getting ready to celebrate here. Uh, I'm going to cook up some carnitas. It's going to go in the smoker here in a minute. Dude, I'm so jealous. Uh, we're, it's actually not raining now, but it's been raining since like 3 a.m. straight. It's just completely soggy here well uh you know we we trade our liberties for good weather here in california <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you do so um i i shared in green room but it's really true uh senator black you are one of our um you know as an interviewer you're not supposed to, i'm not supposed to say favorite guest favorite interviewee uh but the people the fans of the podcast the people who watch the stream um, you are without a doubt a fan favorite. People have been asking, when are you going to be back since you were last on, which was a long time ago. It was, uh, I think it was summer 2021. Um, and, you know, Casey has been asking. He's texted me several <laughs> times, dude, when are we going to have Senator Black on? So I can't thank you enough. Very um, kind of for, you. Yeah, your service, the military, you know, you're a Vietnam veteran, uh, and then you did civil uh, service as a state senator. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So you guys, uh, after this, is everyone going from place to place to, to cash in those free lunches? Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I know. You know, I remember my I aunt sitting me breakfast. down as a child. And she says, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I'm like, not if you're a veteran. <laughs> 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 um, hey, Joe, was it or was it not Senator Black that got us kicked off of YouTube? Actually, <laughs> I, I should have sent Senator Black. I got story. myself kicked off of YouTube. <laughs> you? Oh, oh, that, like, oh okay. that must have been it. That's so, what it is. Yeah, they're like, oh, you know okay, why? you know what? Not only are we going to boot off you, but your little buddies too. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? Um, that interview, so our interview was literally, it was June 2021. And the reason I remember that is because my YouTube channel got completely deleted last Tuesday, week before election day. And um, the third strike, I don't know what the third strike is for. They don't send a notice. They don't, they, they don't tell you what you did. It just says, hey, your channel has been axed. You violated the community guidelines. That's it. But my second strike was that interview that we did more than a year ago, not this past summer, but the summer before that. And they axed it for, I don't remember what they axed it for, but I'm like, wait a minute. I was like, I haven't spoken, I haven't interviewed Senator Black in like 
15, 16 months. What are they talking? Like, how am I getting a strike for this? It was like six weeks ago that I, I got strike two for that interview. Yeah, see. Well, you, you never know what they're doing because, uh, you know, they've, they've got a certain agenda and you can, everything you present can be totally factual, uh, backed up by data, by press reports and so forth. Never speak a, a word of profanity or say anything negative towards anybody. And the next thing, you're kicked off because your opinion is not the one that uh, emanates from some radical uh, think tank. It's crazy. I hope we can shape that up. You know, if we did a drag queen story hour, they would probably promote our shows. Oh, hey, drag queens that promote uh, ivermectin. Or yeah. hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you think of the, the, the term disinformation. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. the, the idea that something is false that somebody's putting out. Well, how about, how about when somebody says that a boy is a girl or a girl is a boy? Now, right. now that is totally provable fine. scientific biologic disinformation. Nobody ever, no, no one ever criticizes them of, of uh, promoting disinformation. So it's, a, it's all just, it's strictly political. And uh, that, uh, hopefully Twitter, you know, the, the change in Twitter uh, will put some pressure on some of these other outfits to, to shape up and to return to free speech again. I hope so. Boy, Elon's got people fired up, Senator. It's awesome. fired down. <laughs> it's, it's <gone> flat fired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're crying their little hearts out because they oh, can't work from home anymore. Don't feel sorry for these people. They got <laughs> one, those top two. They got something like 180 million dollars between yeah. the two of them. So you, you guys on Twitter that are crying for these poor jobless. No, no, no. There, there are homeless and jobless vets out there. Cry for them. Not, not the the CFO or the CEO and the chief legal officer. They got like almost two hundred million dollars. Like, what a sweet firing deal! I, I find it uh, amazing how there's celebrities on um, Twitter that are announcing I'm leaving uh, because of free speech. Like they were. St- it, it, it's crazy how comfortable they became with censorship. Yeah. Oh and yeah, only our opinion matters. You know, it's kind of a problem because I'm not sure that people are growing up understanding what free speech is. Yeah. Freedom of speech is the freedom to say what you believe. And now there are limits on it. You know, you can't encourage people to go out and kill somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, there there are lots of things. You can't can't, uh, deliberately tell things that are false about, particularly about private individuals. So, you know, there's an area of defamation law, uh, things like that. But um, freedom, it troubles me because I grew up in a world that was so free. My personal life was, was incredibly free. I was the head of the household when I was 15 years old. And, uh, I would like to be able to say that I was the most mature 15-year-old who ever lived and uh, never never did any any wild and crazy things. But I'll tell you, we did a lot of wild and crazy things. But um, 
I was on such a shoestring financially that either I was responsible with money or I didn't eat. I mean, and I'm not using that rhetorically. I'm saying literally I did not eat. And my little sister, who I was taking care of at age 15, she didn't eat. And uh, so, uh, but, but, you know, freedom goes with responsibility. And I think the more that we take responsibility away from people, uh, the less free they are. And uh, I'm just hoping we can square it away pretty soon. It's just amazing. It's like Elvira, you know, and that's it. I'm done. And you're right. It's freedom of speech doesn't mean it, 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 freedom of speech includes speech that I don't like. Yeah. It, there was somebody on Twitter saying, you know, oh, here's Jeff Bezos offering mine comp on on uh, on Amazon. And my response to that was my Jewish grandmother told me to read it. Understand history. Yeah. I want to read it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. This, this whole shutting people up thing, that's oof, a little Orwellian. Yeah, the censorship is is a bad thing. Um, but you know, um, you think about, you think about how this affects the military and, uh, there's a a very dear, uh, young woman, uh, who was a, a Marine Corps sergeant until recently. And like so many tremendous, bold, strong patriots, she did not want to take COVID vaccine. And, um, uh, and she was put out of the service for doing that. This is a this is a woman who had a 4.2 grade point average in high school. I mean, that's the the entire average. Just phenomenal grades. Extremely intelligent. She had uh, she was a communicator with the the president's uh, helicopter squadron. She was a communicator, so she had a you know, an ultra high security clearance so that she could fly with the president of the United States and with top officials. And uh, so she gets booted out. And you know, what was funny is <clears throat> during the, uh, during the whole COVID hysteria, the other folks in the squad, was. They, they got this, hysteria. they got this shot. And the next thing <clears throat> she was sort of put on backwater duty, waiting discharge. And they called her, they said, okay, we need you in right away. Well, why? Well, because everybody got COVID and you're the only one who doesn't have COVID in the, <laughs> in the squadron. And we got to have you here to stand the duty. She said, I, I saw her and off she went. So she was, the, she was the only one left standing and fit out of the entire squadron. So, uh, and you know, her, hers is just one of, thousands and thousands of stories of people. And, you know, I've told, I've told friends, I said, you know, there is something about the person who has that, that uh, ability to just make their own decisions. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, COVID right or wrong. I'm just saying that they've made a decision, they've stuck by it. And, instinctively, something tells me that those people tend to be the kinds of people who on the battlefield will make the right decision. They hold the line. Mm -hmm. When everybody else is running to the rear, 
you've always got that SOB out there who just won't quit. He won't give up. And we had, you know, I I fought in in a an enormous battle in the Quezon Valley. Our company actually started it. Uh, we had a Medal of Honor winner, uh, Gary Martini, who came out of that battle, and we we were faced by a uh, by a heavy battalion of North Vietnamese, a very elite battalion. They had set a trap for us, and they should have overrun the company. They should have just been able to storm it and kill everyone, but for the fact that you had the the what I would call this cadre of SOBs, and they're sprinkled out on the battlefield, enormously overwhelmed. And there's one of them right now, uh, Gary Martini, uh, PFC. Uh, he died uh, April 21st, 1967. And he was, uh, he was one, of the, uh, one of those guys who just wouldn't quit. And uh, he kept running out on the battlefield, uh, rescuing people. He ran through the face of enemy fire uh, and, and hurled grenades into the enemy line. It was kind of, it was very much a picket's charge sort of a situation where we were coming across a, a big open rice paddy and they were dug in in the, in the jungle on the far side. And he, he went through the fire and he did this uh, throwing grenades and and then finally he was back in our lines and he heard one of the Marines screaming and uh, anyway they were calling for him uh, this this fellow who was his friend said hey you know can you help me and, uh, and he ran out and he uh, he grabbed his friend and uh, he he began pulling him back. And about halfway, uh, Gary was shot. He was mortally wounded. And uh, he continued dragging this other wounded Marine. Uh, and he yelled back to the lines. He said, you guys stay back there. I can get him. Pulled him, pulled him back. And, and he, he rescued his friend. And, and then, but he died out there on the battlefield uh, before he could return. This kind of person, and this this is the same kind of person I suspect that uh, these are the folks who they think for themselves, they they have strong wills, and so when I when I listen to all this about discharging thousands and thousands of of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines who say I'm not going to take COVID. My religion is against it, or or I just don't believe in whatever it is. Um, I say, well, I tell you what, if if I had to fight, I would want all of those guys next to me uh, in battle because that's the kind of people who win the battles. So uh, it's almost like those are the kind of people that they're trying to target and get rid of in the military now. You know, when I joined i remember specific i had to go to maps like five or six times which is a whole nother story but i remember so many of the military leaders at the different posts that i had to go to three different ones when everything was said and done and i enlisted in the air force and i ended up joining the army it was whole that's a whole nother podcast 
Um, but so many of them repeated the same verbiage. This is America's military. It's an all-volunteer force, which is a huge asset. We are the only superpower. And they said, we do not want mindless, thoughtless robots. That's what Russia has. That's what China has. They said, we want uh, people that are patriots and that can think for themselves and will submit themselves to the authority of the chain of command. That's what we want. People that are going to do the right thing when they have United States of America on their chest and the flag on their shoulder. And so we don't have to think about, you know, are you going to do the right thing? Are you this bold and courageous person? And that's, you know, I joined in 09. Um, I served for 11 years, but that's what it was when I joined, or at least that's what I think it was. And they are looking for something totally different now. We were always told that it was our duty to question your orders. You have an obligation and a duty to question your orders. And if you feel it's immoral, you were, it's, you were ordered not to follow. Yeah, illegal, immoral, unethical. Right. Yeah, Which well, is... we'll see. I, I, think, I think they're going to have trouble continuing on this, this uh, woke path that they are right now, uh, where they're, you know, they're teaching uh, this critical race theory within the military and, uh, you know, trying to create dissension uh, among the races within the ranks, which, you know, we, we used to work with every kind of person in the world and, and the atmosphere was good. People cooperated. And now, <clears throat> you know, after, after the January 6th demonstration, which is what I call it, uh, they shut down the DOD and uh, they uh, started purging the, the ranks of, of Southerners, Southern patriots. And a lot of these guys, you know, they, they would, you know, their great-great-granddaddy fought at Antietam or, or wherever. And, uh, you know, and they, they thought that was a big deal. And it was a big deal. And uh, it, whether, whether somebody's great-granddaddy fought on the North or South, I had a fellow who lived next to me at uh, Fort Leonard Wood. He had a picture on his wall of uh, uh, some great-great-grandfather, I guess. And, and this fellow was in a Union uniform. He had fought with the Union. And I thought, boy, that's really... That's really neat. Now, I didn't have any any heritage going back to the Civil War. My people came later, but uh, but I can understand. You know, people, you know, on either side, they went off to you know to defend their their states and and uh, so the idea of just just purging people because they don't hate their ancestors that's not a good idea. That's yeah. that's not how you develop a, a strong, vibrant force. Well, it's, it, how do you move on from that type of history if you keep, yeah, the, the purging and the getting rid of people and, and oh, your grandfather did this. Well, it, when does it end? When is this ever going to die? It just it keeps perpetuating it. It's, yeah, it's, been, it's been seven or eight generations. Yeah. I mean, this is an enormous length of time. Um, uh, well, the further back in history we go, it does not look good for uh, brown people. You know, Xerxes, not a great guy. Nero, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the, I mean, there there are some 
some brown skin folk that have committed atrocities like Americans wouldn't believe. And and the same thing with the the ancient civilizations of South America, Incas, Mayans, Aztecs. Um, I always say, uh, here we are enjoying a long weekend now. They killed 84, they slaughtered 84,000 people in four days in a long weekend with with personal weapons, with their hands and feet and with blunt objects. Something that like even a fleet of Marines wouldn't know how to do that today. Like, you know, me and all my battle buddies, we couldn't kill 84,000 people in four days with our hands and feet. Um, but for whatever reason, America is supposed to be the greatest evil to ever. It's exactly the opposite of reality. This this is the, the best thing um, that God and God-fearing men have ever done uh, with, through people apart from Jesus is the United States, but we're supposed to be this big evil. Well, um, getting into like the whole racial thing and all this other stuff, that that to me is more of a civilian issue. It, it, well, oh, yeah. There's a saying 100%. in the Navy, it doesn't matter if you're steering the ship or cleaning the shitter, pardon my language, uh, if the ship sinks, we're all oh. shark food. <laughs> sailors you know what i mean (laughs) but yeah so steve bannon says it all the time like the first thing they teach in the navy is how to fight the ship not Mm -hmm. well don't get help from that black guy or you know this this asian guy is not (laughs) who you want like no 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 no. yeah when you're taking on water nobody cares about your skin color (laughs) it's so frustrating um because again it's the a super minority group of people are America's military and veterans. And it's all of these other wokesters. And usually, you know, just to be frank, it's usually an 18 to 28 year old white woman um, who's the angry, we call them Karens. They're the angry, affluent Caucasian female for whatever reason there's like a breed of you out there in America. And you're speaking about things that you don't know and understand like American history. You don't know or understand the history of general Lee and, um, you know, read his biography, learn about his military campaigns. I guarantee you as a black man, I know more about General Lee and have more respect for him uh, than you, angry person, listen to this. Um, but we're being told all these terrible things about the military and how the military ought to be by the 99% who've never served, will never exactly. serve. It's always coming from these people. Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody should get a participation award. And it- <laughs> Listen, the enemy doesn't care about your feelings. The enemy wants to kill you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You can put Uh, that stuff away. Well, and you know, one of the things that's a wonderful thing about the military is that it is such a slice of Americana. Uh, Everybody is is represented. Everybody is a part of it. And um, uh, now we don't don't have a lot of... uh, children of mega mega millionaires and uh, these days we don't have a lot of a lot of children of the powerful senators and that kind of thing but uh, but I want to I want to show a picture of uh, of somebody who who was just a good American kid uh, very heroic and uh, uh, if I can if I can get him, get him in here this is uh, Corporal Henry Smith and he was my chief radio man. Uh, we dropped the highest tonnage of bombs of any forward air controller team in the 1st Marine Division. We did it for three months straight. Uh, 
Smitty uh, called in airstrikes with uh, with bombers, and uh, anyway, he was killed uh, March 9th, 1967. And I'll tell you, here's something about this this young man is uh, he was supposed to go home the following day, no. uh, the uh, the day after he was killed, and uh, so I went out uh, and. Uh, uh, I, w- I was in the short timers tent, but but I wasn't that close to leaving. And uh, so I thought about whether I should go out. I, I heard the I heard Fox Company uh, getting geared up. It was in, in the middle of the night. There were there were illumination flares going off. There was gunfire. There was artillery fire. I knew something was happening, and I heard the the company. Uh, I heard the boots in the gravel crunching and the NCOs going down the line, checking to make sure that nobody's equipment rattled. And uh, so I thought, ah, I got to go out. So I I got suited up and I went out. um, And uh, lo and behold, I bump into uh, uh, Henry Smith, uh, Corporal Smitty, Smitty Smith, we called him Smitty. And... uh, and I said, Smitty, I said, what are you doing here? And he laughed. He said, same thing you're doing, sir. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, let the company go out uh, without me. He said, got a, got a brand new guy. He's never been out before. I said, well, I said, I, I'm, I appreciate you being here. And uh, so we went, we fought our way to the Hoi An River uh, during the next day. And then, uh, Following that, we did a rubber boat assault against uh, against uh, Viet Cong that held the far side of the river. We were under fire, people getting shot. We got to the other side, and uh, we were running up. We were covering the flank of the of the company, and uh, and as we're running up, I uh, I stepped into a punji pit myself, which are these these steel rusty stakes, barbed stakes. They're designed to go into your foot. You can't get them out. And uh, but by then I lost so much weight from being over there that uh, I I felt my foot going down into it, and I was able to pull back enough. And so I didn't. The, the spikes didn't hurt me. But I yelled to everybody. I said I said I just stepped in a punji pit. There are landmines here. Watch your step. And we went about three steps forward, and uh, Smitty stepped on a bouncing Betty landmine. It, it's a it's a two stage mine where it explodes, it it comes up to about waist height, and then it explodes again, so that it just peppers your body and and uh, all of your organs are hit by shrapnel, and uh, so Henry. Uh, on on his last day, he's killed. The brand new guy on his first patrol, he's killed. I was wounded, and a whole lot of other people in the uh, in the line were wounded. Uh, but you think of you think of the opportunism by a lot of these people who are big in in uh, in setting American war policy. A lot of them. And I'm not going to single out the the names right now, but I could do it. There are a lot of them who were draft dodgers in Vietnam, and then they went on 
and they made their careers and they made their millions on foreign policy where they're sending people off for these these foreign wars of, of dubious distinction uh, and and they're fine sending other people to fight yeah, but when, them when the their kids called, they they didn't answer the phone so so you look at somebody like Henry Smith he he didn't have to do anything and he was home he was supposed to be <laughs> home the next day uh, his his mother was <laughs> She was at the at the hair salon getting her hair done up uh, for when Henry came and the Marine uh, sergeant came in to give her the news. So she screamed and she couldn't believe it. And, you know, that's just the way it was. But this was a guy who went into battle with absolutely nothing to gain personally sacrificing his life for for his country because he loved his country and because he was loyal to the Marines, he was loyal to me. And uh, that's the kind of people that that we want to have in the military. And uh, so we, we need to stop this exclusionary thing where we say, oh, look, if you call yourself a patriot, you gotta get out of here. <clears throat> about if we're not patriots then then hey maybe we don't need to be in the military maybe maybe that's what it is about the military um that maybe that's that the camaraderie i keep saying it's camaraderie i'm just like it's the selflessness of people who mm. serve and what's interesting too it doesn't matter if you're middle of the road right or left you're going to have a hell of a time finding anybody that's ex-military that says anything bad about this country yeah yeah yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, I, I just, I have such a love for all of the, all of the young folks who are in the military today. Uh, when I, I left, I left active duty. Now I was, I fought in the Marines and then later went to law school and transitioned over to the Army JAG Corps, retired out of the Pentagon. Um, and uh, so they had a great big. Uh, Parade at the end uh, with the uh, with the Third Infantry, uh, the Old Guard uh, at uh, Fort Myer, and I think there may have been I don't know there may have been a couple of hundred people retiring that day. The whole the whole Old Guard is out there in full array, and uh, and uh, so uh, they asked me if I would if I would uh, lead the the you know. Uh, the event and and troop the line and inspect the troops. So I did. I went with the general and we we did that. And I tell you, as I walked down the line and I looked at the faces of these young guys, um, they just they were just like those Marines that I fought with in Vietnam. And uh, it just gave me a. a a strange but a very good feeling looking at all of the faces doing eyes right looking me in the eyes and uh, it just gave me a great feeling about what it was to be an american and what it was to be a patriot and uh, and i know that to this day we have a tremendous number of, of very fine men and very fine women too uh who share that that love of country that 
patriotism, that preparedness to, to go into action and to do what has to be done. Uh, I just wish that, uh, that more of our leaders uh, had uh, that sort of backbone and integrity and decency and commitment to the American people. I wish our political leaders had the same love for America that these young veterans have. We'd be in great shape if that were the case. Yeah, yeah. It's that sense of being a part of something that's bigger than you. You know what's wild? The um, the leadership experience, and people talk about this all the time, um, you know, that some of the best leaders have served in the military. I wasn't aware of this till I read. I was reading either Good to Great or Over Deliver or something, um, and I came across kind of an astonishing fact that one out of three of the senior executive leaders in Fortune 500 companies, um, so between 33 and 40%, really, um, of those leaders are military vets, which are, you know, these are the largest companies in the world, the most uh, influential companies in the world, and in a lot of ways, some of the most influential leaders in the world. Um, And that... I don't even know why it blew me away because I was like, okay, that makes sense. Um, but it's it, it's really something. Uh, this doesn't have to do with that. But you said, uh, Senator Black, you said in the green room something that alluded to the the national security, you know, implications of of kicking out patriots, of getting rid of um, that forward leaning, hard charging type warrior. You know, the, the the military is a place for warriors, not wokeness. Mm-hmm. Um, that that person who's going to cower. And cowardice is something I understand a lot. When I was a kid, I was plagued with cowardice. I would run away from every fight. I, you know, my dad got into an accident, um, which was kind of like the first time, a really terrible accident. It was kind of the first time that I realized like my dad, who was my hero, um, never really seen him hurt. I've seen him injured and kind of just take it in stride. Um you know, realize, oh my gosh, you know, like this guy's a man who can be hurt. And I don't know how somewhere along life I was, you know, released from the cowardice. The Lord has transformed me into someone else. And now I'm that guy, that door kicking, you know, shooting, fighting, whatever. That's what the military needs. The the military needs the Corporal Smiths, not, you know, the nail polish wearing guy in a dress with high heels that that has serious national security implications. I do not believe. And, and uh, many generals who have written books and who are respected members in, in the community do not believe that we are ready for a conflict. If, if it should arise. Yep. <clears throat> it's, well, no, I, you, you know, you, you don't see men wearing dresses out in battle. <laughs> no. It just doesn't work. I mean, that, you know, it may be yeah. a good job for them. It may be uh, something that uh, uh, something that liberals can can use as a full employment act. But uh, mm-hmm. when you get on the battlefield, you need real men. Um, now, I had I I, I have a great uh, respect for the women in the military. I was, uh, you know, while I fought. And the Marines, uh, as a pilot, and also with the infantry on the ground, 1st Marine Division, um, when I was a JAG officer, 
women were just starting to come in as, as JAG officers. And uh, I discovered that uh, some of the some of the takes me back to Jag the TV show Catherine Bell. Yeah, well, <laughs> and it, it does have some similarities. Yeah, uh, but I was a staff judge advocate, which is you know you're running legal offices. It's kind of like being a U.S. attorney. So I would have twenty-five to fifty to to forty attorneys, and then. And then twice that number of uh, court reporters and clerks and things like paralegals, and uh, so I discovered that uh, some of the, some of the staff judge advocates weren't too anxious to have women, and so I called up to headquarters, up to the Pentagon. I said, "Look, I said uh, I understand this is you know this is a transition, but uh, I said, look, I said if you've got if you've got women who have really good strong records." And they're willing to go through a short course at Fort Benning and go through jump school en route. I said, send them my way. And uh, so I'm sure that the, the vast bulk of the airborne qualified female JAG officers in the Army were people who personally had worked for me uh, when I was uh, with the 7th Infantry Division and, and later on at, uh, at I-Corps at Fort Lewis. Um, they made spectacular uh, uh, trial counsel and, and attorneys. They were very fine attorneys. And, uh, and it's it, this whole labeling thing, like, you know, nobody's saying that uh, women can't do any of the things that guys, sure, my, my mother owned a construction company and was out there with a the jackhammer with the guys. It's just the majority, you know, have a tendency to want to do this. Or, you know, you have that going on. But it's just, it's one of those things where I keep thinking of the whole, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. <laughs> it's like, and the civil, the civility of it. My sister is, uh, you know, retired Marine. Like a, my sister is a, a badass warrior. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But... The nation, it, oh, so much of this stuff is because of the leadership failures of men. Mm-hmm. We don't, a civilization doesn't want to see its women and children sent off to war to be slaughtered. There's, mm-hmm. there's a reason that in Africa and parts of Asia where they have child fighters, child soldiers, that it's abhorrent um, because they're, you know, there's a reverence there, there's an innocence there, and there's something worthy to be protected in a society's women and children. And that's why the for men, you know, manhood isn't about sex. It's about that age where that age where you can take on responsibility and you are essentially a fighting age male when you can go and defend your home, your your way of life, your country. Um, that's the, the 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 gates of manhood, not not you know, something that happens in the backseat of a car or something. Yeah, um, you, you know, you have, a, you have a dynamic that operates within a military unit. And now I'm not talking about um, uh, stateside or, or I'm talking about the front lines. On the front lines where people are in direct uh, contact with the enemy, uh, and, and I've been in a lot of these. I fought in 70 very, very bloody uh, 
combat patrols with seven different uh, Marine infantry companies because uh, I would be attached to each company as it was going into battle. So I went from battle to battle to battle. And if, if you think back to Pickett's Charge, where you had this great Confederate army and they surged forward and they went, and few of them actually got into the enemy lines before finally they were pushed back by the Union. But you think of what it was that caused those men to go and to watch people just being blown away on one side and the other. Um, and what it is, is there's a psychological thing among men. You don't want to appear to be less than the guy next to you. Mm. And, and this propels you literally to the point of death. Now, when you, when you have sexually integrated units, a lot of people think only in terms of physical strength and that, and that, that is an issue, but you, you all of a sudden you break down that ethic and you introduce a new ethic and you have certain people who, hey, by virtue of being a ladies' man, suddenly somebody, he, he's, he didn't even have to be a hero. He's still a big deal. And so you begin to create these, these forces that tear apart combat units, frontline combat units. And uh, uh, so it, it, if you look at the history of the world, uh, you will find that throughout history, uh, war has been fought principally by men. Now, there have always been, there have always, I mean, there were women in the First World War. Uh, in in the in the U.S. Armed Forces, but they had certain roles, and uh, but the men were the were the ones who went up and died, and so it's not just a political thing or a cultural thing, because nations throughout history, I mean, they've been faced with survival or extinction of the entire uh, the entire race or tribe or whatever. And, and yet uh, they, they did not put women in there because of this particular psychological dynamic that very few people understand. It, it's, it's just too hard for people who haven't been in really fierce combat to comprehend what it's like. But anyway, well, that's just uh, something that, that has to be straightened out a little bit. Women have an important role big role, but uh, uh, when you get to the frontline units, I think we need, uh, we need good, strong men. Well, in your, when you're on the front line, the last thing you want to be is distracted. Right. And women are distracting to men. <laughs> They're, and, 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 the breakdowns, and the breakdowns of a lot of uh, incidents, which is something that I studied a ton, um, you know, post-military, or I guess I was still in the army um, when I was doing my graduate studies, um, the kind of the impacts of women in the battlefield. And um, large groups of men will abandon their training uh, to, to come to the aid of, oh, of yeah. a fallen comrade who's, who's a, a woman mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that Discipline and training will overcome if it's another guy who's injured. Mm -hmm. um, and as all three of us know, that actually wreaks havoc on the combat effectiveness of the entire, you know, the squad breaks down and then 
you know, the company, and then you're you're having huge. Uh, you're combat ineffective, essentially. It's funny. It's chivalry, is what it is. Yeah, it's essentially. Yep. <laughs> there's there's something in our our spirit, our psyche, our whatever, yeah, where we can yeah. we can look down and see an injured guy and say, "I need to continue mission," and we can right. look down and see an injured woman and say, "I need to help." No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're you're exactly right because that that suddenly gives a man an excuse for not going forward mm, yeah. he can say i've got to stay here i gotta i gotta take care of mary that's and, uh dave grossman talks about it in excellent books on on killing and on combat um yeah is that what's called uh dave uh colonel dave grossman he's he's written two books on essentially on combat and the psychological effects on taking life uh the first one is called on Killing. No, the first one is called On Combat. One of them came first. On Combat and On Killing. Excellent reads uh, for Check military and law enforcement types out there, or just a responsibly armed citizen. Uh, uh, but hey, we've got about 10 or 12 minutes. I definitely want to um, um, pull up the photos. So you you sent in, you, you sent us some awesome uh, photographs, and I just, I really can't thank you enough for sharing uh, your stories with us. And, um, you know, it's in a strange way, it's almost like on par with the the importance of actually going and serving and fighting what you did. Um, but to continue to share these stories and for youngsters like us uh, to take them in and to share them, especially like millennials and Gen Z, gosh, like I'm a millennial, but uh, we're just a depressing bunch. And, you know, we're losing the World War II population every day. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was on funeral honors, I've done dozens, if not hundreds of funerals for World War II vets. Um, And yeah, so it's important that these things live on. Uh, So I do want to pull them up. Oops, that's not right. There we go. Oh yeah! <laughs> look at, look at this good-looking guy. Look at this guy. <laughs> well, that's that's me on the left side of the screen, and uh, Mike Hayes is the one on the right. He retired as a brigadier general, but he was wow. wounded. He was wounded right in front of me. He had a piece of shrapnel that went in his neck, and it was a it was a small hole. And every time his heart beat, oh man, literally squirted a little. A, a little squirt of blood and I went up and I was, I was wounded my arm and leg. And, and I I went up and uh, on the battlefield, you just do what you got to do. You you figure it out as best you can. I, I put my thumb on his neck and lo and behold, it stopped the bleeding. And, and he was there and, you know, he's kind of shaky and all. And I I said, Mike, I said, you're okay. I said, you got a hole in your neck. And uh, you gotta, you gotta take care of it. I said, give me, give me your hand. You just and, said uh, I was okay. Now you're saying I got a hole in my neck. Do it hold your neck. Well, I can't. You might want to get that looked at. Stand there all day holding this, holding your blood. So I, I, I took his hand, I took it up, and I, I put his thumb on the, on the hole. I said, I said, okay, Mike. I said, you can be okay. Just, just hold, hold your hand there. Don't, don't let it go because uh, we, we got to get it fixed. And I went on forward and and then uh, I called the medevac and uh, 
Anyway, a bunch of us, a bunch of us uh, were brought in helicopter loads of casualties out of out of the First Marine Regiment, most of them Fox Company. And um, they had you, when you go into Charlie Med, big medical center, uh, they had you stripped down. And they explained, they said, look, we have you stripped naked because a lot of times people are wounded and in the, the adrenaline pumping, trying to survive on the battlefield, they forget where they were, where they were hurt. So we're all standing there naked. And, you know, I, I had been bleeding all down my arm. So I knew that was hurt. And, and sure enough, you know, I had been hit in the back of the leg and totally just, it, it left my mind as soon as it happened because I had to keep moving. I had, there were casualties to be taken care of. There were uh, helicopters having to be brought in. And, uh, and then I recalled, yeah, I remembered being being hit in the leg, and it was sort of like if somebody took a baseball bat and swung with full force just as hard as they could, like they're trying to hit it over the wall and hit me in the back of the leg. That's what it felt like. But it was there, and then immediately your mind is so focused on survival so anyway, this is after Mike and I had been on the ship for a couple of weeks, um, and uh, and it's just shortly before I went AWOL from the ship, uh, we I asked to go back into battle with my with my unit with Fox Company. The doctor said no. He says you you got stitches. You lost too much blood. And when he left, I you took off myself into the into the uniform. <laughs> got suited up. Slipped down the passageway, you know, sneaking in and out of doorways. And I went up to the flight deck, uh, and they had a lot of casualties coming in out of Contian. Very bloody battle there. And uh, they were, you know, a helicopter would come, and they'd take them off on stretchers. And uh, so they emptied one out, and as soon as they did, I ran across, just dove into the helicopter, just just literally diving across the blood on the floor. And then I went up to the to the pilot, tapped him on the shoulder. He opened, he pulled back his his flight helmet to listen. And I yelled into him, I said, I said, I'm the fact for second battalion, first Marines. I said, I got to get back to them. They're in battle. He said, Roger, and off we went. And he flew me into to two one. So uh uh, these were the things going on, and that that picture sort of sort of caught the moment before, you know. At that point, I was thinking, "I'm ready to get out of here." You you had me, <laughs> me. I'm going back to the fight. So that was the picture. <laughs> Good times. Wow. You know, I uh, my first sergeant, my very first one, uh, Peter Laura, who. Um, uh, he's been nominated for the Medal of Honor. I don't know if he'll get it. He's he's got a what is it? Uh, Bronze Star for Valor. And they started giving out the Bronze Star like candy, but his is a valorous one. Um, and I remember on the line one time, he walked up to me with five five six green tip in his hand, and he pre- he moved my helmet aside and pressed it into my temple, which is I already knew this guy was a little bit of a nut. Uh, but I'm like, all right, what the heck is going on? And he looked down. Uh, I was a specialist, but they called everyone privates. He said, what are you going to do, private? And I 
I was speechless. I didn't do anything. And he said, what are you going to do on the battlefield if one of these comes tearing through the side of your head? And I didn't say anything. I'm not sure what the answer is to <laughs> that he, he said, you get up and keep doing what you're effing doing. And years later, when I was learning more about force-on-force conflict, when I was learning about being injured and, you know, like, hey, like, I got stabbed and I needed to stay in the fight and I needed to do... Like, if I if I just pay attention to this, mm-hmm. then I'm dead. Um, that's what he was, like, teaching me. And I realized it was a decade later is when I connected those lessons. Like, hey, yeah. Even if you get shot in the side of the head, if you are still thinking and aware, you're alive. Then you you fight, or or you'll surely die. Yeah, if you um, stop moving, you will definitely die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> uh, it, it's just incredible. And no one had to train you to do that. You just like, oh, well, gotta keep going. <laughs> like, oh man. Oh god. Yeah, um, there's 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 a bunch of the guys in, in the in the jungle. Uh, very heavy rocks and and uh, and tall jungle trees there, and uh, they've got a three five rocket launcher in the back of them, uh, laying down on the on the ground. We used to use those to mark targets where you'd you'd fire a, a rocket with white phosphorus. We call it Willie Peter, and it, it explodes and gives off a very uh, thick cloud of white smoke that the aircraft can see. And you can see the, the one guy in the front, the one with the helmet, he's got a he's got a belt of machine gun ammo. A lot of guys would carry extra belts of machine gun ammo because in a battle, the machine gunner, he's 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 got a good amount of ammo and the assistant gunner does too. But you run through those and you have a strip of about a hundred rounds on a belt of of uh of seven point six two ammo. And you got to have a lot, and it's it's always good if if other guys can have extra belts of ammo. So you can see, and then I, I think uh, on his belt, uh, maybe one or two of them have uh, M26 hand fragmentation grenades, uh, which was very good in the in the jungles where it was kind of hard sometimes to see a target, but you could hurl a grenade in, and and the shrapnel would uh, would yeah. get to people. And no, no need to spray and pray, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was calling in a lot of napalm back in those days, and that oh, was very effective in the jungle. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, funny, Senator, um, as you were telling us about uh, Gary Martini, uh, Joe, maybe you can back me up on Doesn't that sound like a scene from Forrest Gump when Forrest was dragging everybody out of the uh, the, the, the jungle? I haven't seen Forrest Gump in a good long while, but they they have some incredible uh, combat sequences. Well, there's and then literally there. there's a scene in Forrest Gump where that's Forrest kept running back in, finding somebody else, bringing them back out as napalm's yeah. coming in. Well, yeah. they 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 did their own little you know artistic version of a lot of different stories in Vietnam. I I bet they were actually doing a reenactment of that. And you know you know lots of people serve to. They, they weren't necessarily in combat, uh, but nonetheless, they did did great things. When when I was uh, I was on a flight uh, somewhere, uh, and they were picking up uh, 
medical uh, people headed to hospitals. This was in the United States. So this is, this is not during wartime. And uh, so I took a seat next to a very, very elderly, frail, elderly man. And, you know, I knew everybody on the plane was, was you know, either they were active duty or they were, they were veterans. And this, this was obviously one of the veterans. So anyway, so we got to talking a little. And I, I said, I said um, what service were you in? Well, he says, I was in the Army. And uh, I said, oh, I said, well, what was your, what was your specialty? He said, he said, I was an aviation woodworker. I think I had told him I had been a helicopter pilot. He said, I, I was an aviation woodworker. So I sat there for a minute, and I've, I'm trying to process this, and I'm, I'm thinking back to everything I've ever seen, fixed-wing aircraft, jet aircraft, helicopters. I can't think of any wood in any of them. <laughs> I, said, I said, I said, sir, I said, I don't know what that is. I said, what did you do as an aviation woodworker? I thought maybe, maybe he, he was helping to build hangars or I don't know. He says, oh, he says, well, he said, uh, he said, I, I was a carpenter who would, I would build the spars and, and the different pieces of the wing and so forth. And all of a sudden I read, I said, you, you were working on on wood and canvas aircraft. He said, yes. He said, I was in the First World War. Now, of course, all those guys are dead today. But, uh, but and I, I sat there and I thought, I'm the last person probably, I, I have probably met the last living aviation woodworker from all nations, from all history, and, and he's sitting here next to me. Mm -hmm. um, there was another time when uh, I was a reservist in, in Orlando. I was in the Marine Reserves after I got off uh, active duty to go back to school. And uh, uh, so I was a captain, and, and I was with a, a bunch of other captains at the Marine Corps Ball, uh, November 10th. And uh, we went in, and there was, again, a very frail old man, and he's standing across the room. And he's wearing a campaign hat, and he's wearing he's wearing leggings, canvas leggings, and he's got these you know the sort of the bloomer uh, brown trousers, and he had a single medal, and the fabric was torn and it sort of tilted at an angle, but the the medal was still hanging on it, and we went over we thought. What? We got it. We got to hear this story. We got to see who is this guy. And uh, he was probably the last uh, uh, person who had fought in the Spanish-American War. And he was there at that Marine Corps ball. I'm sure he never made another one after that. Um, but uh, he had, he said, yes, he said, I, he said, I volunteered, went over and I I fought in the Spanish-American War, and uh, and that's what his medal was for. It was a, a campaign medal to show that he had fought in that war. And I, here, here we were. I mean, you know, I guess half of us were combat veterans, and uh, and the other half were very, very fine reserve officers. And we were in awe of this guy. I mean, we just 
we couldn't believe we're seeing somebody from the Spanish-American War. Uh, so you find all of these people with incredible stories to tell, whether they were in battle or not. That was my grandfather. Like people like, hey, tell us this this story or tell like people like I didn't know would be just, hey, weren't you you know part of the Dam Busters? And like, what the, what's what's the Dam Busters, Grandpa? And then I get in the Navy and I find out what the Dam Busters were. I'm like, oh my God, my grandpa did that. Uh, he was on the USS Texas and they got hit in Normandy mm. and wiped a bunch of people out. He was on the bridge and he happened to be standing just in the right spot, didn't get hit, but the, the shell didn't go off. So he goes down under the, uh, down under, uh, underneath. And, uh, here's a dun, 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 boom, dun, 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 boom. So the ship's rocking back and forth. The shell is rolling back and forth in the birthing. So oh he, gosh. Huh? <laughs> yeah, he runs down there and like stops it. They still have the shell. It's the, the Texas is uh, she's moored. She's a museum now. They still have that shell. Yeah, what, a, like, what a wonderful story. You know, oh, my, yeah. my uncle, my uncle was in the Navy. He was a he was a Navy chief. He was on a, an LST, and they they were out in the Pacific. Went to throughout the island campaigns, but he told me how one night they're cruising along, just quiet as could be. It's kind of a moonlit night. And the Japanese ships, the uh, Japanese submarines, they had to come to the surface so that they could run their, their generators and recharge their batteries. And so a Japanese submarine was, was surfaced, just cooling it there, running his batteries, not, not causing anybody any trouble. And the LST is sailing along, not causing anybody trouble. And the next thing... Uh, they 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 ended up having a a very minor collision. They just just sort of scraped by one another. Well, well, the the Japanese sub just I mean the people obviously go into a panic. You know we've just been rammed, and so they you know they slammed down the the uh, conning conning tower door and, and they you know they burp, 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 you know dive dive and they dive well. <laughs> The, the commander, he, he's under there. He puts up his periscope. He sees, here's this LST. And they fired all of their, their tubes of torpedoes directly at the side of the LST. Oh, my God. So here, here's my uncle and all, all these other guys up there. <laughs> and they've got like six torpedoes. And you can see the, you know, the bubbles behind them. And they're all headed there, and they're all going to hit. No, no possibility that they would miss. Well, obviously, you know those guys are are experiencing some some biological functions at that oh, moment. Yeah, a little pucker effect. <laughs> so, but the torpedoes hit the side of the LST, which you know I'm sure made dents in all of the sides. Got the timing. But they on. didn't. They didn't go off. And he explained to me that. If you've seen the the little propeller on the on the nose of a torpedo, it's a safety device, mm -hmm. and it's it's to prevent just the same thing that would have happened to that that Japanese submarine if if it weren't there. The torpedo doesn't arm until there are certain number of revolutions, mm -hmm. and it goes 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 and then snap, and the safety is off. And it's ready to fire. 
And so they had all hit while they were inert. And so the Japanese and the Americans were just, you know, every, everybody, you know, about to lose the contents of their stomach. And <laughs> then it doesn't go off and the Japanese submarine dives and goes away. The LST goes on its way. Not a single person injured in the encounter, uh, but it was pretty pretty dramatic. You know, not not to mention, uh, I mean, not only did nobody die, but you actually probably saved a lot of lives because now that submarine doesn't have any more ammo. No more sinking ships. Yeah, <laughs> they'd have armed. to go back to port. Yeah, they shot everything uh, they had at you and still missed. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I, I want to share um, First Sergeant Laura's story. Uh, really quickly. We're a couple minutes over time. And, uh, you know, actually, Senator Black, I hadn't connected these dots until just now, uh, but my grandpa served in Vietnam, too. He was a tight gunner on a on a tank. Oh. And, um, and he, in his tank company, he had an incident where um, he was one of two survivors and they had to float a river and they had um, constructed something with, like, bamboo and and ate bananas until the day he died. My grandpa hated bananas. He hated bamboo. Um, and uh, honestly, he was probably a little uh, a little racist uh, against Asians as well. But, you know, uh, oh, yeah. he, he was a good guy. Uh, <laughs> Peter Laura. <laughs> this is my first first sergeant. This is the guy with the 5.56 oh, yeah. in the head. Uh, he... Um, in 2005, he was the platoon leader of uh, Task Force 2-1 in Iraq, and they were doing, um, you know, clean of the night type operations. They were doing high-value target uh, capture and kill missions um, against a smaller terror group that a lot of people don't know about. They're, they're, they were called like Zakari, um, something like that, but everyone knows the sexy ones, Taliban, ISIS. Um, there, there are a ton of terror groups, uh, moving all kinds of weapons and stuff like that. Anyway, so they're going to, they get some intelligence. Um, it's good. So they go to do an assault on this house. Uh, but it wasn't just demolish the house. It was capture kill. So they go in and he, you know, he tells the story every time he's training troops. He's truly an, an, an inspirational non-commissioned officer, um, just telling them, you know, stay in the fight, stay in the fight. As soon as they enter the house, uh, they had a striker brigade, which um, I think strikers are newer. I don't think they had them um, when you were last in country, but it, it's uh, it's kind of like an armor person. It's a mix between an armor personnel carrier and a tank. It's got some decent mm -hmm. weapons on it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so they are away from the safety of those vehicles. They, they do this deliberate assault. They're in the house and they realize immediately that it's a kill house that's designed for drawing soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen in and, and executing them. But once you're in, you're in, you have to assault through the objective or you're dead. Um, so they start that assault. Um, and, uh, you know, you would expect to come into and see small room, small room, small room, which are, are the homes in Iraq. But instead, they're just boarded off. You're kind of funneled. It's just hallways and there are no actual doors. Hmm. Um, so it's like they've constructed a small maze for you, which is a disaster in a war zone. Oh. Um, so they had, you know, they had deliberate ambush points, choke points. They had heavy guns, machine guns pointed down in their position and they just had to try and fight through the end. Uh, so it gets to the point where everyone is shot. Um, then Sergeant First Class 
Peter Laura, he goes around the corner and he experiences what he thinks is getting shot in the face. Um, and his, his, his jaw is exposed. He's bleeding into his, into the top of his neck. So he clears it. Um, he's kind of like, you know, holding his face together and he goes back around the corner to fire again. And that's when he learned that he wasn't shot in the face. The machine gun had actually shot his rifle and it, it kind of blew up. It was, it was black line at that point. And the shrapnel from the rifle is what damaged his face. So he took a machine gun round to his femur and it shattered it. Uh, so then he's out, he is out of the fight. He's losing consciousness. And, um, he's, he was the second to last. He was at that point before he got shot, he was the only one who wasn't shot in his squad, the two squads that entered the home. Uh, so he gathered everyone up, put all the armor he could on the outside of them and called in a strike from the strikers outside, uh, on, on their own location, which is nuts, but it's the only thing that they could do. Um, and everyone who survived is because of that. Uh, and, wow, uh, that's quite a story. Yeah. yeah. It looks like it's been upgraded. I just saw in here when I was looking um, that he's awarded the Silver Star. Um, so I don't know. Good. Maybe, uh, I don't know if they continue to put you in for those things or not. But uh, yeah, you you guys, you guys and... Uh, yeah, <laughs> and your war stories. We are so glad that you're here to tell them. Uh, we love hearing them. I was not kidding. Uh, in the green room, Casey asked every other day for weeks, "Hey, when are we going to have Senator Dick Black on? Uh, <laughs> where's my Where's my dog?" <laughs> yeah. Well, I gentlemen, uh, thank you all for your service. Enjoy some some free something somewhere, um, and enjoy freedom while we while we still have it. <laughs> while we While we have it. Hey, man, thank you so much for having me on. Gentlemen, it's, it it's an honor and a pleasure to be able to call you guys friends and fellow veterans. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joe Mobley Show. Remember to subscribe and make sure you don't miss out on future content. You can always show your support by leaving a review or making a financial contribution by going to thejoemobleyshow.com and hitting support the show. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.